Blog Talk Radio.
and I'm sure most of yours probably could too. But uh, a little bit of business uh, beforehand. We have uh, the Battle Road uh, into the world as we know it, Zombie Destruction uh, Biathlon, coming up April 11th. That's Saturday, April 11th. And for those of you guys not familiar with the uh, with the event, it's a four and a half mile looping trail with eight shooting stations along the trail for rifle and pistol and obstacles in between the stations. The reason that we set this up is so that uh, you can you can see how your uh, shooting skills, your stamina, and your gear all really need to work together in order for you to be successful. Uh, there's not a lot of places that you can uh, that you can really work all three together. Uh, there are places where you can shoot, certainly. There are places where uh, you can uh, put on your uh, your backpack and stuff like that and go for a hike. Uh, Places where you can uh, you can run obstacle courses and stuff like that, but very rarely you get a chance to, to do all three together. So that's what we're providing, and uh, it's a great event. You don't have to run; it's called running gun, but you don't have to run. Uh, even just walking at a uh, at a good steady pace will give you a pretty decent uh, time on the course. <coughs> the obstacles are not designed to break you. Now, they're designed to break you. They're just designed to see how, to get you to see how you're, how while moving uh, with your body and your gear on, how it affects your gear. It wants you to be able to, uh, uh, to climb through stacks of tires or climb underground or, or crawl, uh, low crawl under barbed wire or climb over the top of walls or gates or, uh, just about everything that we can figure out, uh, throw your way, we, we're going to do that. Uh, we've also got a, a zip line coming this uh, this next event where you'll you'll zip over uh, about 180 feet of uh, of stock tank. Uh, this is all just to uh, to give you a chance to see how your gear works, how your stamina is, how you shoot after you have uh you you have uh, walked or speed walked uh, or run uh for a mile or a quarter mile see how your your hands shake or how your breathing goes uh how steady your shot is and uh we want you to see just as much that several of the stations are are I, I got to say I don't think that they're tough but they apparently they are they're tough for some folks because uh, uh they end up not making it through the station because uh some of the stations do require you to have uh the fundamental rifle skills I want you to be able to hit a uh like a twelve inch square at a hundred yards even though you're in a awkward position I want you to be able to hit it uh, every time uh, we want you to be able to uh to be able to hit a full-size body target made of steel uh, from 250 meters, even if you're in an uh, in an awkward position, 
because that's going to be probably what you're shooting from in a lot of cases. Uh, uh, you don't always get a chance to get set up perfectly, so there's a good chance you'll be shooting in an awkward position. Uh, you know, no matter what you're doing, whether you're hunting or whatever. <clears throat> so uh, this gives you a chance to see uh, where your skills are sharp, where they may be lacking, if your gear is set up right, if that backpack that ran you uh, 350 bucks, if it uh, if it wears a bloody hole in your shoulder after a mile and a half, then uh, you may need to uh, you may need to figure something out. And that's what this is for. It'll be like April 11th, 2015. We'll run it again, I believe, in October. I think it's October. Uh, 11th as well. Uh, And then we have upcoming courses for handgun, CHL. uh, uh, We're in Central Texas. uh, CHL courses. Uh, We've got uh, fighting shotgun courses getting ready to go in the books. I've got a beef and small game processing class that I'm getting ready to to schedule. I was going to schedule it... uh, three weeks from this coming weekend, but it looks like we're going to get uh, a lot of rain this weekend. And what I've done is I've got uh, two beasts. I'm going to go out and process one, either, I guess, if not this weekend, then next weekend. I'll process it and uh, hang it in the cooler. And uh, that way, uh, when you come for the uh, uh, for the game processing weekend, uh, the first day we will uh, we'll harvest the uh, the beef and we'll harvest the hog, and uh, <clears throat> then we'll uh, we'll skin them, uh, we'll uh, we'll gut them, we'll quarter it, we'll hang it in the cooler for both of those, and then the next day, because the uh, beef needs to be aged. Uh, in order for you to, uh, in order for you to be able to enjoy it uh, properly, it needs to be aged. And I like to hang up the beef for about 21 days, <clears throat> and uh, that way we can go the next day, take the beef that is already hung for the uh, three weeks, uh, bring it out of the cooler, and process it. We'll also be doing a hog too at the same time, but uh, the hogs don't require; they, they don't need to be aged. They just need to to hang overnight. So that the flesh cools down and it gets firm enough that uh, uh, that it can be that we can cut it up good. So we'll do uh, we'll do a beef and a hog and uh, maybe some rabbits, uh, so that you can kind of get uh, an introduction to uh, how this works and uh, you know get your get your hands uh, dirty in it. Uh, and then uh, by the end of the day on Sunday, which will be two days. I believe we're going to charge 200 bucks for it. At the end of the day on Sunday, we'll have everything uh, processed. We're going to cut it up into, uh, just like you see the stuff at the butcher store, into uh, steaks and briskets and uh, roasts, hams, bacon. Uh, And then we'll probably end up also making some hamburger and sausage. The people that come, I'll probably give give you guys uh, like a pound or two of hamburger, a pound or two of sausage, and then you can buy some. Uh, of the meat to take home with you too. Now, all of our 
all the beef here is organic beef. We don't. There's no. Uh, there's no extras put in there. No chemicals. Uh, no uh, GMO feed. Nothing. It's all grass fed. All hay fed. Uh, the only thing that they get uh, that is uh, uh, that is not straight out of the ground like that is some liquid protein, which is just uh, molasses uh, and a few other natural ingredients to add protein to their diet in the winter. In the winter, they're eating a lot of dry grass, so it has a very minimal content in the dry grass. And uh, we'll add some protein in there uh, along with cotton seed and stuff like that. So that's really all that... uh, that's really all they get, so that you know that the that the meat is going to be good. You'll be there for the whole process of uh, uh, of processing it. So you'll get to see exactly how everything goes. Let me tell you, I run a I run a really tight, uh, clean shop. Uh, I I I take care of the meat. I do everything very cleanly. Uh, at the end of the day. You don't uh, you don't hear my flat bottom shovel scraping on the concrete floor, getting ready to make a sausage. Okay, that's what happens at other places. Uh, so you'll be able to see uh, every aspect of it, where all the meat comes from, and everything else. And uh, just check the uh, uh, check the website in the next week or so for the for the dates on that. That's uh, www AppleRoadUSA.com. All right, uh, I want to get uh, I want to get started on this. Uh, our guest tonight is uh, Alabama inventor and entrepreneur uh, Danny Cook, and uh, his guy is uh, he's absolutely uh, the the energizer uh, guy uh, in the flesh. And uh, he's a wealth of information. You guys are getting ready to get bombarded by it. So get your notebooks <laughs> and your pens. Get them ready. <laughs> Mr. Clapp, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. We've had the flu up here in North Alabama for the last week or so, so if I have to break to do some coughing, you'll understand why. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It's going around everywhere, that. I'm afraid. I hope that you start yeah. feeling better. Well, thanks a lot. We're we're doing a lot better, but I tell you, it's been going around North Alabama here. So we're but we're we're doing better. Yeah, I'm afraid I I I'm, I have so much information that swirls around in my head. I sometimes I overload people with things. They'll come to see our farm out here, and by the time I get through or four hours with them, they're trying to get away from me. You know, it just is an overload. So <laughs> we'll try, I'll try to information overload. So I'll try to keep it uh, keep it refined for us as best we can. And if there's other topics we need to, I'll mention some maybe toward the end that we can talk about a little bit and doing some of my research that maybe we'll uh, we can do another time maybe. I was going to say that that we'll uh, we can keep it. I don't mean uh, shallow or topical, but we'll right. just talk about a couple of things and then uh, I also I told uh, uh, Rick I told JB for you yep. guys that uh, no uh, JB is Junior Birdman. And I think he may or may not call in. He said he may call in to help me corral you. And uh, <laughs> so, and that is right. That would be good. And uh, but uh, let's get started on this. And listen, guys, I met uh, Mr. Cook. Uh, I guess uh, let's see. This was uh, well, probably was March two years now? ago. I guess wasn't it? It was yeah. March two years ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he came up for uh, the. Uh, uh, the week-long 
Precision Rifle Sniper course, and I tell you, you listening to uh, listening to all the stuff that you are doing was just <laughs> amazing to me. And and we'll give give folks a little bit of a kind of like a little bit of a background and a little bit of bio on on who you are and what you're doing, and okay. then we'll jump into the digester. Okay. Uh grew up in South Alabama in peanut country, uh, 55 years old. Uh, graduated from a little country school there in 1977. I was pretty good at baseball and could throw that thing left-handed, so a couple of years in junior college. And it's interesting when I uh, I'll tell you my background in a minute, when I sit around the table with some of these guys, I only have seven or eight engineers, and they all like to give their pedigree. And when they get around to me, I tell them I've got two years of college baseball and, and about 30 years of hard luck. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sort of brings everybody back in line, you know, because <clears throat> I'm the one that called the meeting. But um, I grew up down there, and I uh, was in the my, my father did some sawmill business among any other things, and that's really where uh, I have two younger brothers that to this day build uh, portable band sawmills and sell them all over the the world uh, in Dothan, Alabama. And uh, matter of fact, some of your listeners may have bought sawmills; they're familiar with some of these brands, and and they're they're also engineers without a without a degree. We just come up and did things a school of hard knocks you we didn't talk about it we went out and built one and tried it and that's sort of the mentality i've had all these years and my wife don't agree with me on a lot of it because engineering and re-engineering costs a lot of money but it sure is a lot of fun so well you know uh, what I, and i told my daughters about this just, uh over the last couple of years because we were at that point where we we're starting to discuss universities and stuff and i and i said look it's I'm, right. I'm all for you going to the university and i'll i'll uh I'll back you all the way. We'll do whatever it takes. I said, but I want you to understand too that before there were ever universities, there were all, there were geniuses and inventors. And oh, uh, no doubt, no doubt. And just um, uh, it, it, I think that a lot of the the universities are are simply scams. Uh, you know, it's, it's well, money. The way I look at it is this: high schools teach you how to go to college. College teaches you how to get a job. None of them teach you how to succeed with money or business. And uh, and I know that's sort of a stereotype, but that's what I've seen. Now, I, my kids went to college. I want them to go to college, but I take it upon myself to teach them the hands-on things as they're growing up so they can have something to relate to. Kids nowadays can't relate. I mean, I met right. engineers that they they don't know how, literally, do not know how to turn. They don't know lefty loosey and righty tighty with a, on a bolt, on a nut, on a bolt. I mean, it's amazing that they've got all this knowledge, but they have no hands-on. So I think it's incumbent, particularly upon us as fathers, to, to teach that. And that's a whole other subject we could get into. But anyway, my background, so I grew up in that atmosphere. Uh, I've got into the chemicals business. And and. Actually, that atmosphere of growing up was uh, pretty interesting because we had these sawmills. We had these, uh, and this was in 78, 79 with the gas lines. I got real concerned about energy as a young man fixing to be married uh, in 1980. And and I was real concerned about, uh, you know, where are we going to get our energy from? And so we noticed that on cold days, uh, that that mound out there of sawdust that was being pulled out by the drag chain, the green chain we call it, we'd dig our hands down in that thing and it'd be hot down there. Of course, that's composting, which you talked about a lot last week. And uh, so I went from there and and we got to noticing things. We try to be observant, my younger brothers and I, and we noticed that uh, if you put green grass or semi-dry grass on top of a good burning fire, it's going to smoke a pretty good bit. And when it dries out, all of a sudden you'll see that thing catch on fire. Well, that meant there had to be gas in there. So 
we run a little experiment I'll share with you because it was it's funny looking back on it now, but it was dangerous when we done it. We took a, a four-inch uh, smoke a stove pipe, about four foot long, and I wanted to run a quick experiment. So we took grass and we poked it down the top of it, and we took grass and poked it up on the bottom. This is dry grass now where we mowed it up. And we poked it both sides, and little did we know it, it had a chamber in the middle of it where there was no grass, but didn't think anything about it. We took an elbow uh-huh. and we stuffed it in there. And then we took a, a – remember the old oil cans in the old days where you had the little V-punch that you had to you had to take the little thing and open the top of the quicker oil state right, can? Right. Well, we plugged up one of them and left the big hole open. So we stuck it in the end. I, and then I took my torch and I cut a hole in the bottom of that thing, and I turned it up uh, and just let it let it cook that grass. And when it started coming out of the top, this little vapor, we lit it, and it was a blue flame just to prove the concept, hey, can we do this? Well, we went along, got to talking and carrying on there and doing that, and what I didn't realize was that pocket of gas was sitting up there just it's full in between it. those two pots, and when it hit it, it blew the end of that oil can. It must have blew it, I don't know, 50, 75 yards. Good thing we weren't in front of it, but that was my first experience with wood gas, and I sort of fell in love with that concept, and then later I was fortunate enough to meet some people and got into the byproduct chemicals business. And so I turned trash into treasure. What I do is I'm a chemical trader. I'm a one-man show, but I use the knowledge I've had over the last 25 years to find large quantities of products that nobody knows what to do with and try to find homes for them in industry. And uh, had some some success here and there, ups and downs, been beat by a few people and that kind of thing. Big companies are always trying to find out what you're doing and, and take it away from you, and that happens too. So I've uh, been down a, a lot of roads with that. that. I love the way that you're doing that. I mean, I love the way that that you're you're not just trying to – you're not just saying, hey, I've got this, and uh, and you need some of this, and I'm going to get it to you. you. You research it. You go through it. And you figure out alternative uses for it and, and help people uh, develop uh, items, products, and stuff that uh, they not they normally may not have. I, I really do. I mean, that's what I do. And and there's I'm in the fatty acids business, fats and oils. I know that I'm in the fatty acid business and things of that nature. And I've I've invented a couple of things that hopefully will come to fruition here in another year or two that we've pushed a lot. And uh, you know, and all that sounds good, but at the end of the day, if you, you can invent all you want to, but if you can't sell something, it really don't mean anything. But along the way, you learn a lot of things, and you learn that things are tied together. The good Lord made us where all this ties together. And we'll get into some of that with this methane digestion here in a minute. But anyway, that's what I do. I try to turn trash into treasure. And so gases and liquids and all of these things are right up my alley. And then my brothers also, we, we talk a lot about these things. We're forever trying to dig up something to make money with. So we're always playing with these things. And with the advent of our economy getting rough again in 2008 and, and the ensuing years here, it has... Uh, made it more prevalent to me, and I can share some things with you along those lines that concern me that uh, I know personally about some things happening in the electrical industry that really bother me, and and I don't know how long that will last. So uh, you take that and couple it with a – we have a church that has a mission over in northern Ghana near the Saharan Desert, and they have to live with electricity, and that makes me think real hard. What if I don't have electricity? What do I do? How do? Because it all comes down to BTUs and energy. Everything we do, you take away electricity, right. we're third world. I mean, period. We're third world. So the difference is the ability to turn that light off and on. What if you can't turn it off and on? What are you going to do, particularly in a cold climate like we have? So that's what got 
that's got me swirling around all this. And so I've been pecking at it for several years now. And uh, I guess if you ask me what my end game is, I would really like to have a working farm here where, when I say farm, alternative energy, everything from we build a rocket stove to this methane digester to the heat pile to the hay bales to the hugel culture to all of these things and then I can go and teach people that want to come here and learn in one place from someone who's actually done all of this. So instead of having one thing, we may have 20 things to teach. Uh, so it'd be I, I, that's where the end game is for me anyway. Right, and, and everything is uh, is already there, set up, and running. Right. Like you, you got like it. the methane digester and stuff. You got it. So we take them a weekend, we give them a manual, we charge them a, 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 a decent fee, and then they don't have to go re-engineer everything because we've we've done it. I, I tell people I should have come from the uh, from Missouri because I'm sort of like the show me state instead of Alabama because I I have to have people show me something or I have to go build it for myself because if I don't understand it and I can't explain it then I don't know what I'm doing. I mean you find anybody that can't explain something they're doing they don't understand it either. So a lot of it's common sense. Well, the current – well, I'm not going to say the current project because I know you got a ton of projects, but the, the one we'll talk right. about this evening is the methane digester. And, uh, okay. If you could kind of give us at the an, an intro on that in the background. Like, uh, like first of all, okay. it's called a methane digester. Uh, yes. Because, you know, I've always uh, – even after I – even if I learned the right name for it, I still – I was still calling it a methane generator. Right, and it is a digester, and I'll explain it in simple terms. The simplest one, again, like I said, the good Lord made us so that we sort of, uh, everything ties together. Let's take our body, for instance. Our body is a methane digester. We take in substances. We take it into our stomach. We have juices and enzymes and bacteria that work on it in there. We have what I call in the chemical business distillation column bottoms that come out. It's been digested, and the gases come off. Well, we understand that because we know what how our bodies function to a large degree. It is the same thing with a methane digester. The one in particular that we have decided, to, after much study, we designed it with three or four criteria. You have to have a starting point. And ours was, take a 2,000-square-foot house. What is the total amount of BTUs that it takes? Convert that to BTUs. And then can we set up a system that will generate enough power to run everything in that house? And what would it take? That was our premise. Well, what we wound up with is something on the order of a cow's stomach. A cow has several stomachs. So we built this digester so that it's using IBC totes, which are the same totes you and Rick talked about last week with the, uh, with the 275-gallon chemical totes. And right, we right. use totes... I'm sorry. Is that right? Yeah, that's that. We, yeah, we, yeah. we had so talked what, about that. Right, you talked about that. So what we did in this case is we took the totes, we lined them up, we raised them up about three foot onto a platform so that we could get a five-gallon bucket underneath some of the spouts if we needed to. We we wanted to uh, we wanted to make it as much as we could where we can segregate it because there are times when you have it goes sour if it goes bad we can segregate one of those and take it offline without interrupting everything in the line okay let me talk a minute about methane digestion versus composting in composting you have thermophilic thermo meaning heat philic meaning loving you have heat loving bacteria that love oxygen also. 
So when you're turning that compost pile, as you described before, you have thermophilic bacteria that work in the temperature range of 150 to 160 degrees that digest or basically eat that and poo. And their poop is what we want because that gives us the fertilizer, okay? Right. It's literally bacterial poop. Worms poop, we call it worm tea. It's the same thing. They are digesting it and giving us the right mix of what we need. So that is aerobic or with air. In methane digestion, just like our bodies in this methane digester, you're doing it without air. There's a whole other set of bacterium that will operate without oxygen. They are also thermophilic. Some work in a range of around 50 to 80 degrees. They don't make a lot of methane, but they do digest very slowly. And then you have some that work around 85 to about 105, and then you have some that work around 150, 160. The particular, what we wanted to do was have the least amount of BTU input and still have pretty good methane digestion. So we're shooting for somewhere in that 90 to about 105 degree uh, F temperature range for our thermophilic bacteria. So what, and, and here's the other reason we want to do it in the greenhouse. I'm always, I like those twofers and threefers, if you know what I mean. Yeah, we want buddy, something that don't it. do one thing, we want more than one thing. So we set it up in there, and here's the reason we want to run it in the wintertime and not the summer. You know, if you look at, in my business, if somebody's buying something from me and the spec is is uh, 15% water, and I'm selling it for 50 cents a pound, and the material I'm getting is 90% solids, I would like to add 5% water to that because I'm getting 50 cents a pound for water. Right. Right? It just makes right. sense, okay? <laughs> well, think about think about our vegetables. In the wintertime, in the summertime, a tomato, say it's a, a half-pound tomato, big tomato, that thing will cost you 50 cents a pound. If you take that same tomato in the middle of winter, that thing will cost you $3 a pound. Now, what you're doing is you're selling water at a particular time and year. Same way with squash. You're just selling water. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you if you take 60 tomatoes and dry them, you can take those 60 tomatoes, dry them, grind them up, and they'll fit into a quart jar. Yep. So you're selling that's, water. Yep. That's what we're selling. Okay? Well, People don't no think about it like that, but than, go ahead. I'm just saying, no, no difference in uh, even then, uh, I was talking a few minutes ago about uh, beef production and stuff. You take a, uh, you take a beef and you, uh, you jerk that beef out, you hydrate it, and, then, uh, yep. and you've got this big 1,000-pound animal. Now all of a sudden, uh, you can put that whole thing into uh, into a bar, into a large suitcase because yeah, that's uh, right. it, it, all of the water is gone and it's uh, shrunk up, and that, that's the reason that they that you don't get aged beef anymore because two right. things: one, it takes the time to do it, and number two, is aging the beef means you're going to uh, you're going to lose a lot of the water weight during aging. That means you lose you lose a, a pretty decent amount of money from that beef because you're not going to be able to sell the water. You got it. They also are selling water. By the way, I'll tell you a little aside here. I knew a guy was one of the largest propylene glycol users in the United States. This was in the early 90s in Kansas City, Missouri. He found out that you could take a quart of uh, propylene glycol which is, by the way, in Dr. Pepper and other drinks, but a quarter of propylene right. glycol, and they could pour it down a cow. Actually, they had a catch pins where they'd run them through. They'd pour it down a cow. It made him so thirsty, he'd gain, they'd do it two or three days before they sold him, he'd gain about 40 pounds of water weight. <laughs> oh, yeah. This guy bought 
a million gallons a year of polypropylene glycol to pour down cows. That's just the way the chemical world works. But anyway, back to our methane. Um, so with the methane, what we did was we, we you want something where you can grind up the smaller the particles, the easier it is for the bacteria to chew it. So in the in the greenhouse, we wanted to do two or three things. One was we want to grow stuff in the wintertime because that's when it's the highest price. We want to be able to, uh, so that means we need to keep the greenhouse about 85 degrees, okay? So if you put you a train, if you will, a processed train of methane digesters in that greenhouse, and you have to keep it warm, all of your money goes into the BTUs it takes to keep that greenhouse warm if you're in a climate like ours. Right. So if we could, if we have to heat it anyway, then the benefit to us is we heat the greenhouse to a large degree, lowering that BTU consumption rate out of propane or other things, we generate gas that we can also burn uh, in that in that greenhouse. If you burn the greenhouse gases in, or the gases off the methane, let's call it, you you uh, put out CO2. CO2. They actually have CO2 generators now to put them into greenhouses because they could they need that CO2 to grow. So it gives you CO2. Um, so that that was the premise. Let's grow things in the winter. See if we make a business plan out of it one day and then sell the produce locally because a lot of people and the government is now pushing for people to buy locally um, versus buying you know, further out because of freight. Freight is such a – even with the price of fuel down, freight is still a huge cost. So that's sort of the premise behind how we sort of got started in this thing and the thinking behind it. Okay. Um, now, methane. Let me explain as best I can for you visually how this works. We have we wanted it all to run also off of solar pumps. Uh, the only thing that we would need power for is a generator to give us 110 or 220 current to run the grinder to grind the food. That's the hardest thing and the most energy consumption. So we designed it so that we can crank this generator, and I'll get back to how we fuel it in a minute, but you crank the generator, it will run for approximately 20 minutes a day. It will grind the food along with the water, and that gives your grinding. All the excess BTUs that generator puts off, we will put into the battery storage and things of that nature to keep it charged up. That was the primary reason for using that. It takes a lot of power to run a grinder. We have an industrial grinder. It's like a hu uh, an industrial restaurant-type sinkerator. We will grind the, the food, and, and there's some good books out on how you do the carbon-nitrogen ratio, and I won't get into that here because that's a, a discussion into itself. But you've got a carbon-nitrogen ratio. Basically, we're going to take five uh, gallons a day, 50 pounds roughly, of food. And we'll, and pizza, by the way, makes some of the best methane in the world because it's got the right amount of oils. I heard you talk about oils and things of that nature. It's flour, starches, all of that. But take food waste, either our own or others. Grind five gallons of that in with 45 gallons of water, preferably rainwater or something where you don't have uh, chlorine in it because that'll kill your microbes. Right. We will pump that right. into right. We will pump that into a tote that is high enough that it can gravity flow into the first one. And we have it so, set up sort of like a septic tank. It goes from high to low in each one of these totes so that as one fills up, when it gets to the top, it starts draining into another and to another. And so when you put in that first 55 gallons that day, and it'll take 55 gallons a day between the solids and the water, it will take 30 days for it to run through your train. At the end of that 30 days, you have nothing really but liquid. And that liquid, then, is God's gift to us as fertilizer because you're putting out a lot of fertilizer now. So... The key to it is to keep the pHs right. That's the main key to, to, to biogas. 
is keeping the pHs correct and keeping that flow going through there. We we do have it. I think Rick described it a little bit. We use the heat pile as sort of a trickle charge battery. Once we get it up, we will use it, and it it will it actually circulates inside of these totes, and that keep and it's on demand. We have 12 volt solenoids on demand, so that it will demand, and we run all of that process last year for about four months. Runs really well just to test leaks and all that just with water. So we've got all that tested out. Um, then the next thing to do is, uh, and we're getting real close, so we've all had a lot of th other things to do, but we're going to grind the food and start putting it in there. And then we also have it set up with, and all this is off-the-shelf stuff, with a yacht macerator. They use them on yachts, or 12-volt. And for 10 minutes every day, it will take, again, with solenoids, and a little diagram we put together. One of our friends is, a, is an electrical engineer. He put us together the diagram, so it's all homemade with stuff you buy off the shelf. It will come on every day each one of those totes for 10 minutes, and the contents of that will go through that macerator to, again, reduce the particle size and circulate it in that tank so we keep it circulated. Uh, if something goes bad, we got manifolds on them so that we can take it off and uh, there. So that's sort of the general idea of behind methane generation. You don't have to go that big. I've seen some of your pictures on your website as I was pulling it up, and what's interesting is you can uh, – you can do this with a 55-gallon drum and another drum upside down in it. It's real easy to do. Right. I did I did post two, I think one or two photographs like that, just so people could see that, that it wasn't just a uh, uh, huge, uh, you know, like swimming pool-sized things. That right. People were doing this with, uh, uh, I think that they were using uh, uh, two of the, like, uh, 55-gallon drum, the plastic barrels right. and the metal barrels and stuff like that, and they were... They were Correct. cooking it up like that. Okay, so you you are using the decomposing wood chips and, and talking to uh, uh, to Rick about this. Uh, he said that uh, you guys uh, that uh, you are using oak wood chips yes. for the uh, for the decomposing uh, wood. And uh, there is a reason for that. Um, the reason yeah, for that is. Okay, pine has terpenes in it, terpene alcohols. Alcohols will kill bacteria. So as it decomposes, it takes longer, number one, because it has resins and terpenes in it. And those terpene alcohols will kill off your bacteria, and you, you want to keep them thriving. So you want to use any hardwood. You don't want to use anything that has terpenes like cedars or pine or anything of that nature in your hardwood chips. And basically what we did is we laid a, a foot of this down, then we made a concentric circle with black pipe, and we went up another two foot, and each time we were wetting it, then we went up another two foot, and of course plumbed it all into the tote that uses that acts as our reservoir, uh, our surge tank, if you will. And as Rick pointed out, it has been running about 150 to 160 for almost two years now. Um, yeah. And it that thing is amazing. I've seen it. Now I haven't invented any of this. Okay. All this is is a compendium of things that I've watched and and researched and found in Europe and other places. Uh, and then just went out and said, guys, let's just go do it. But it is it is amazing how much heat this pile puts out. And we're going to – the reason we spent money on the data loggers is we're data logging it every day. Uh, well, I actually have it off now to do some other things with the data logger. But uh, it's we're going to data log it to the day it dies so we know exactly how it went. And now we'll have more information than anybody on the net about what a pile really does and why. So. Well, that is going to be probably – uh, I would think one of your 
one of the, uh, at least for a certain aspects of it, one of the best parts of your project is the data because uh, it you, is. Could, you can you can develop anything. You could develop a, a device that would make diamonds, but if you didn't write oh, down yeah. exactly how everything how everything worked, then it's kind of useless. So I think that it uh, is. Because Rick was telling me that uh, that you guys were keeping very meticulous records of yep. uh, what you did, how you did it, and what uh, the amount of energy produced, temperatures, everything else. I just sure. think that's fantastic. So we're keeping a lot the, of it because that's going to be important if somebody wants to come see uh, it. Doing the same thing in the uh, the greenhouse. We have two trains, by the way. The greenhouse is about 28 foot, I think, wide by 90 long. We've got it cut in half or blocked off in half, just running the greenhouse out of one side. Through the winter, all last winter, we had some really cold temperatures and seeing what the pile would do and wouldn't do and the auxiliary heat. Now, one thing I did miss telling you, if with this generator, we can take the methane gas off of it, and it will burn in the generator. And I think that's one of the things that you'd ask me to, to speak about a little bit is how does that work? Um, right. There is yeah, a... First of, all, first of all, you're getting your... your you're creating the uh, the actual physical, uh, the liquids that you're creating. That's going to be used for right. a uh, specific purpose, which is the fertilizer. That's but correct. along with that, you've got a byproduct of the methane gas. Now, once, that is once the gas is being produced... Uh, how do you go about harvesting the gas? Okay. We have we have a manifold in each one of these. And by the way, for your listeners, uh if you wanna get if you wanna look up something that's really good and really works, we didn't believe it until we tried it. It's called Uniseal. You can buy Uniseals now and these are basically big grommets. You can put up to four inch pipe through the side wall of a plastic uh barrel or something and it will hold pressure i mean it's pretty amazing how well those work and we've learned some things about how to make them work better but um, what happens is the gas comes off this is a biogas um, the biogas is going to be and, and these are some important things to understand here you've got methane mixed with co2 because that's the two byproducts that are coming off of this anaerobic digestion when right. your ratio your ratio has to be at least 55% methane and 45% CO2 for it to burn. If your ratio of CO2 is higher, it will not burn. But as it turns out, that's about the ratio that it puts out. It's about 55 to 60. There are things you can do to scrub the CO2, but it's too complex for well, that's, a conversation that's what I was here. Ask too, is it? Right, right. So here's what right. here's what you do. You also come off with sulfur trioxide. That's the rotten egg smell that comes out of digesters. The way you scrub that is fairly simple. You can do it one of two ways. You can take uh, steel wool, and you can put that in a column, literally a plastic column, let the gases flow through there, and you're only talking about one or two PSI. You don't need much to burn. You're not, and So you let it go through there. The sulfur will hit the iron in the uh, steel wool, or we're, we're going to use... Uh, uh, metalworking shop, you know, where they turn lays, just the steel off of that. When it contacts it, it makes ferric sulfate, okay? The sulfuric acid and the, the sulfur compounds uh, react with the uh, the iron, which acts as a catalyst, it makes ferric sulfate. Uh, once you've done that for a while, and it will scrub, when it starts smelling, you know, to, to, to put more ferric, sul- uh, more of uh, your ferrous material, your iron in there. That ferric sulfate, by the way, is a fertilizer also. It goes on your shrubs and your trees and things of that nature. They're deplete in uh, sulfur and uh, iron, and so ferric sulfate will work as a fertilizer there. So that scrubs it out so it doesn't smell so bad. Now you've, you've got something that will burn. I'll give you a couple of numbers here. Uh, propane 
runs about 2,500 BTUs per cubic foot. Methane, like we're making here, is going to run somewhere around 1,000 BTUs per cubic foot. Now, if you were to scrub some of the CO2 out, and there are ways to do it with lime and things of that nature, then you could uh, you can scrub that, and if you were to scrub the CO2, you're going to make the BTU rate higher. But running at about 1,000 versus 2,500 is okay. <clears throat> what happens is, if you see a lot of these central boilers and different things that run they tell you they'll run by gases where they'll run natural gas. By the way, natural right, right. gas is just like biogas. They've just taken it and scrubbed the CO2 out of it, and now you've got a little higher content of methane in there, okay? Right. That's what natural gas is. So these terms are sort of confusing. But if you take that biogas and you want to run it in that generator, there is a company, and I'll plug this guy because he's really good. It's called propanecarbs.com. He can help you figure out and he sells a little thing, about 250 bucks, if I remember right. This is an addition to your carburetor, so you can burn gas or natural gas, or biogas in this case, or propane. On your, on, and basically what you're doing is you're increasing the size of the venturi in there. Whatever propane is, you need it to be about twice as big because you need about twice as much volume of, of methane going in there to burn the same as propane because you got half the BTUs. Make sense? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, it just I mean that's it's that simple. You just got to get more of the goody in there that's going to burn, which is the methane. Now, a couple of interesting things about propane versus biogas or methane. When you put a small amount of CO2 in methane, you cannot compress it enough to liquefy it. At least we can't conventionally. You can compress it some, but you'll never get it to liquefy. We're talking 3000 psi. Whereas propane will compress at about 125 to 150 degrees F. So, but it's a pure molecule. So, if you're looking at storing it, uh, propane you can store. You can store methane in a propane tank, as long as you don't get over about 150 or whatever the tank is rated at. But you're you're going to get five or ten times the amount. But you're not going to liquefy this. There's people that's trying it all the time. You cannot liquefy it until you get the CO2 almost completely out of it. There's something about it that makes it where it won't liquefy. So you say, well. What do you do with this gas you're making? Okay, now you're making gas, everything's good. What are you going to do? The best thing that you can do with that methane gas, people put it in inner tubes. They just let it fill up on its own. It creates a little back pressure because of the elastic. You can put it, I've heard of people taking a barn and buying a weather balloon. Not real expensive. They hold a lot of gas. You can put it in there. You can put it into something you build in the ground, like a pool that's airtight that will blow up the thing, a dome over it, if you will. That gives a little pressure. All you need is one or two PSI, just like you would on a, a propane grill. Okay, That's very right. low pressure. But the best thing you can do for it is turn it back into heat. And so in our case, we will. our wish is to run the generator with it. It is also to run the... Uh, to heat the water if we need a heat exchanger in case we have really cold nights to keep the greenhouse at a steady flux. You can use it to heat hot water for your house, and it'll pipe forever. I mean, you can pipe it 300 yards if you want to. So you can build this thing a long way away because all you need is PVC pipe or whatever kind of pipe at one or two PSI. You just and you, There's no danger, by the way, very little danger of this exploding because the BTU content's not very high. And you have to have the right oxygen mix for it to even light. So opening a tube and lighting it won't hurt a thing. It's not going to go into that tube and burn all the way back. So it's fairly, it's very safe too. So that's uh, 
that gives you an idea of, of what you can do with it. Um, as far as energy density, um, propane, in my opinion, this is Danny's opinion here because we've been down, Rick and I, all of us, we've discussed this and been down these roads a lot. The best thing you can do for energy density is not necessarily storing diesel fuel or gasoline, it's propane. Because as long as you don't have a leak, 10 years from now, that propane tank is going to be sitting there and that propane still going to be in there and it does not degrade. So if you can buy propane and store that, then that's the way to go. If in, in right. for, if you can afford it when you can. Beyond that, right, you get a lot of benefits from bogus. It's not going to destabilize. Or, not at all. Uh, it will be the same today to, uh, as it will be in 10 years. Right. Yep, be the same. Uh-huh. So that's the way to do it. So so you see the reasons for having our greenhouse. We want to grow stuff in the summertime, I mean in the wintertime. We want to be able to heat it without costing us BTUs because that's where your profit's at. We can sell stuff at higher prices. We want to be able to put CO2 in there. So our generator, by the way, all the heat coming off that generator, it's just putting out CO2 and water. So that's great. If, so as when we turn it on inside the greenhouse in the wintertime, it's throwing off all that heat. So we're going to reuse that heat again. We're going to let the plants take the CO2 and convert it to oxygen. We have CO2 monitors to make sure we don't get too much. I know that's always a question, what you're going to do. You have to have CO2 monitors, but they make them cheap now at Lowe's or different places. You can get them to where it tells you if you got too much. Uh, if it is, you turn on, you open the door for a while. I mean, it's that simple. So a lot of this is common sense. We built our train, our process train, so we can actually, it's got five totes. We can put five more to either make another methane train or what we really, what Rick and I talked about we'd really like to do and the other guys is we'd like to get into aquaponics because you can grow yes. tilapia and at 85 degrees, they will grow twice as fast as they will at 75 degrees. And you can grow a pound of fish, tilapia, in per per gallon of water that you have. So if you have 250 gallons, you can grow 250 pounds of protein in there. And I've actually been to Auburn and different places studying up on that four or five years ago and have all kind of notes on that. So that's that's an interesting study too. But now you have, and, and I tell your listeners, go to YouTube, research, just research the hound out of this thing because people are doing different things like this all over. They're just not bringing them together in one big consortium of, of technology, and that's what we hope to do. Oh, I'll give you an interesting fact, by the way. I just found a paper out of India. Because the biggest worry about methane is having the right bugs. The way you inoculate it is what it's called, is you take uh, manure from uh, goats, deer, uh, horses, because they have that bacterium, some of it's still alive, in that in the feces. One of the best that they found, they did a bunch of tests over there on different inoculums, and guess what they found was the best one by far for making methane gas. And it makes sense when you think about it. It was the American cockroach gut. (laughs) (laughs) Well, a cockroach can digest anything. So when you go to inoculate, you use manures to put it in there to start your microbes because you just want all you're doing is feeding microbes and keeping them growing. That's all you you keep them happy, you make methane. And so what we're going to do is use cockroaches. We're going to use termites. Think about termites. What have they got in their gut? And they can digest lignans. Yep. Mm-hmm. They yeah, can they can the, digest lignans. The uh, right. They're one of the only one of the only biologicals that can actually. Uh, you can actually process that and uh, and do anything with it. Exactly. Uh, so it was interesting to me that I found this research paper on the American cockroach gut. It grows the best thing in the world. 
Now, there's a another thing that's very interesting. For most of your readers are going to have swamplands nearby. Is cattails? I've been doing a lot of study on cattails. Cattails are very, very interesting. They're rhizomes, number one, which means they, like bamboo, they grow from their roots and they keep growing. They're almost a infestation. Right. But what's interesting about the the cattail is when ground up, and different parts can be ground differently. When ground up, they have the right carbon nitrogen ratio almost perfectly for making methane. For making methane, um, the 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 tops of cattails. When they're pollinating, are good for making flour, for making bread. Some of the stems are good for eating. You can eat the stems, so you can you can grind you can dry the roots and grind them into flour. And I, I found all this researching this stuff in Ghana for this mission trip. Uh, it's amazing what you can do, and the cattails grow everywhere. But you can actually grow cattails, pull them up in the wintertime, grind them up, and 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 digest them. So you don't have to depend on because one of the first thoughts is, well, what if you don't have five or ten gallons of a food waste out of a restaurant or out of my home every day. What can I do? Blooms work in the springtime. Blooms are nothing but sugar. You got blooms. You got leaves. You got some grasses, some oils. Um, you know, different things like that. And then you got these cattails and things of that nature that will make a lot of well, a lot of yeah, gas. Cattails. Now, I, I, of course, I I started eating those when I was uh, a kid after reading uh, Yule Gibbons' book, but. Uh, Right. You know, the, one of the things that I started doing is, uh, like, I would split the, uh, uh, not all of it, but I would split uh, a portion of the gray water from the house, and uh, instead of running it through the septic system, that's some water you need to, because you need to, it needs to, the pipes need to have a decent amount of water run through it to keep them clean, keep right. the solids from backing up and stuff. But you can, you can take some of the gray water, and you run it uh, outside into a, uh, like into a clay uh, depression, and then you plant the right. cattails around the edge of that, uh, and they will they will uh, suck up all the water for you, and you can grow the cattails there. Yeah, and that's excellent. I'll go one further for you on that. Cattails are now being used by large chemical plants because one of the interesting <laughs> things they have about them the is, is they the can water. clean up bio- as their biological filter. They can actually accumulate heavy metals in their roots and hold it. Which is an interesting right. concept. So they're they're bioremediation factors uh, to concern with. So their their cattails are really good for that. So so there are things out there. My point being, there are things out there that you can use, and you want starches by and large. You got to get the carbon nitrogen, but you you got to find starches because starches will make more uh, more gas than anything else uh, because they're just ready made for it. The sugars break down. To acetic acid, the acetic acid and lactic acids in there will then uh, uh, make the alcohols that are needed, to which then can make the methane. So that's, that's sort of. I'll give you a couple of books here that are very worthwhile for anybody interested in this to read. One's called The Complete Biogas Handbook by a fellow by the name of David House, and it's H O U S E, just like it sounds. That is uh, is one of the best written I've ever seen, and it gives you a lot of. A lot of details, so you can decide how you want to do it. The other one that I would suggest reading um, is a fairly older book uh, by the name a fellow by the name of David Bloom, B-L-U-M-E, and it's called Alcohol Can Be a Gas. These are worth putting in anybody's library. The one on alcohol is an amazing thing about the history of alcohol, which is totally different than what we see in America, and I won't go into it. But this guy shows you how to build a steel for making your own alcohol. 
which I was interested in when I was in my early 20s. That's how I learned to do distillation is is by helping some right. uh, some fellows moonshine and bills do it with some grain and different things and learn about distillation. But those two books. I would recommend to anyone because they and and the one on alcohol he talks about uh we can be energy independent with cattails in our swamplands that is no joke because you can make ethanol and butanol from uh cattails like crazy and it's uh it when he goes through the numbers it is astounding how much gas and and then liquid and all you're doing with ethanol and butanol is taking taking these gases and basically treating them differently so that now you have a denser fuel because it makes it a liquid. I mean that's all it is. Well, I I had, I had been thinking about this well many years ago right? when when I first started uh, you know considering you know prepping and stuff like that and I started going through right. lists of things that that I might need or want to do and teach myself and stuff like that. One of them, of course was. Uh, producing alcohol, and uh, you know, I started right. acquiring all of these gear for it and stuff. And my first thought was, I said, "Well, there's people that are going on this; they're going to want the, to drink that alcohol." But the reality is, and I've talked to several other people now since. Uh, there's a guy from uh, uh, Argentina and another one from uh, the uh, from Croatia, uh, Furfall mm-hmm. and Selko, who mentioned the exact same thing. They said that. Uh, that people were distilling alcohol, he said, but it's not what you think. They weren't using it for drinking. So they were using right. it for everything else. They're using it for uh, running an engine, for cleaning, for uh, you know, for cleaning their their bodies with and stuff like that, and for cooking, you know, as a yes. uh, as a fuel for cooking, and on and on. So there's a ton of things that uh, you can do, and just like you're talking about with the. With cattails, you can make alcohol. You can distill alcohol from just about anything. So anything with sugar, anything that's got sugar, yeah. you can actually make alcohol from, and you can distill it. He teaches you in that book how to build your own little steel and that kind of thing too. I mean, it's it's very. But the reason I didn't go down the ethanol thing, and I've been down the biodiesel. I actually sold some technology in biodiesel and got a real learning about that. Is is again? It's energy density. How much dollars on a small scale for the the homestead, if you will, are you got to put into something to get something out? And and making biodiesel makes no sense whatsoever because you can't buy right. a large enough volume to do it. And I've got clients of mine. One of them makes three to four million gallons of of biodiesel every year. Abides by all the rules and regulation. Does 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 well with it up in uh, the St. Louis area. But the small guys just can't do it. Uh, it's it's just not cut out. But they can do methane. And I would say on methane, uh, the rule of thumb that I've seen from some people in India that have Indians have really worked this because they have so many people. They take their food waste and mash it up, and they do this 55-gallon drum in a drum like you were talking about. And Mm -hmm. you can go on YouTube and find a lot of this. And he tells you that starches, food waste that you have, particularly fruits, will make 40 times more gas by volume than uh, anything out of the out of cattle or anything any dung of any type, right, and right. they what they do. So what they do is families over there have them a little methane digester, a, a 55 gallon drum and a drum. They mash up their waste. They put the waste in the in the side of it underneath the fluid, so so you don't get oxygen by putting it in the fluid. And then the gases come up and it raises that little tank, just like your. I think you showed one on your one of your pictures. Raises it up, and that gives you the pressure you need. And then they simply run a cheap hose to their cooker, 
and they make enough gas to feed a family in India of five every day, and it's it will burn just as blue and just as pretty. I don't even know if they scrub it. They probably do, but you scrub it through the iron filings, and it will scrub. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the other way you can scrub it, for people that maybe uh, have a little more interest, you can take agricultural lime, and you run the, the fluid, just bubble it up through the lime for a period of time, and as it bubbles through in one pass, the SO2 again and SO3, which is sulfur dioxide and sulfur trioxide, the rotten egg odor, will combine with the lime, and it will make calcium sulfate. If, and if it's got enough air in it, it'll make calcium sulfite, then it makes calcium sulfate. Calcium sulfate is gypsum, and gypsum is fertilizer. So right. once again, you get another, as you scrub the SO3 with lime, you're, and you just put it in the lime water, basically a dilute solution, and it will scrub most all of that smell out. And uh, you can run it in the engine. You can run it in anything you want to run it in, basically. So. Well, what about the what about the uh, you've got the uh, oak wood chips? They are decomposing. Right. As they're decomposing, they're creating energy and heat. That heat is being collected by your uh, by your water system. And yep, it's being transferred system, into there as a trickle charger, right? Right, and uh, but from what I understand, when I was looking at some of the data, you're making way more uh, energy than you're using. Yes, we are. Well, now I'll, let me to be honest on the heat pile. You can pull out about 600 gallons of water through that thing a day without r- lowering the temperature too much. At least that's what the preliminary numbers show. You can pull it out, and, and what we're doing is we're running it through the greenhouse, uh, that system, and back. So it's a closed loop. So all we want to do is draw the energy off of it. So you can heat about 600 gallons a day of water to, uh, is our estimates, and I'm going to say it's probably high. If you can get 400 gallons a day at about 150 degrees, then that heat pile will, it won't, it won't increase your temperature a whole lot if you've got really cold winters. But it, if you've got it already at 100 degrees, where I'd like to maintain my methane digesters, it acts as a trickle charger, like a battery trickle charger, if you will. It will give supplemental. So because you're heating, remember, you've got 250 gallons in a 275-gallon tank, and you've got five of those. So you've got right. a lot of mass there to keep up. So it won't always keep up with that, I don't think. That's why we need the engine running off the methane or burning the methane okay. itself okay. in a hose See, to give on really cold days. Now, you have to realize a greenhouse, what our data suggests already in North Alabama, is when you have temperatures that are even 35 to 40 degrees and the sun is shining, it gets hot in that greenhouse. You, I mean, it'll yeah, get 85 yeah. degrees without any supplemental heat. The problem is at night, clear nights where you radiate out so much heat from the earth and the temperature drops way down, that's when you may need the supplemental and where it will help to have a generator in there and run it at night instead of the daytime. Again, just common sense things. But the heat but, pile. Well, right now, though, your your pile is not. Uh, were you were you ever considering running the pile uh, underneath the greenhouse? You can do that. There, we 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 haven't because, well, again, we're in the middle of just getting out and doing it. We just put this right, one together right, right. to see what it does. But would it put out enough water to do it? When you start digging, and I've studied all that. When you start digging under a greenhouse, you start running your cost way up for the normal homesteader. Uh, it would be uh, you got to put insulation under there because the ground is wanting to cool it down to 60 degrees, you know, every every night, regardless, and that's right. too cold. Right. So you can do that. There there are other things. By the way, if your readers want to, uh, your listeners want to 
researched something really interesting. Put in greenhouse uh, air bubble insulation. There's a guy in Canada that's developed the technology where he can actually put foam in between two layers on the greenhouse. You put two layers, two skins, if you will, and you blow foam up there, and in the wintertime it reflects. Uh, it will heat up with the sun hitting those big air air bubbles six inches deep in that whole greenhouse and it will it will generate more heat then the summertime he lets those bubbles run down real fast and it will t- actually reflect heat and take away heat really interesting but again a little more sophisticated than most of us would like to get i try to keep it simple i mean you got to right, keep right. it simple even well, ours sounds you complex it but it's simple. fairly simple yeah you have to right. because too many things can break down otherwise um right and you know so, that here in uh in Texas, and I'm sure they have the same thing uh, uh, in different ways there uh, in Alabama and in all of the states. But uh, if you start doing the research and you and you get with people who are doing uh, work in greenhouses and aquaponics and stuff like that, the uh, the government is actually backing a lot of this, and uh, there's actually uh, a lot of programs out there that can assist you with the uh, with some of the costs in some cases. So that's always they, worth they are. Uh, researching, you know, and see if you can help cut down your costs, you know, to get started. And uh, and there are also lots of folks that are willing to, not like you guys, you guys are very soon will be uh, uh, providing a, a mentoring business where you're, uh, right. where you're teaching people how to do this, assisting them with, uh, with the technology and stuff like that. But there, there are lots of folks out there if you go out and you look, you'll, you'll find them out there willing to to give you a hand with this and tons of stuff on uh, on the internet. And uh, I think there is a lot of information. Yeah, yeah, way more than yeah, way more than it, you can ever really yeah. figure out. For a guy like me, it keeps me up nights because when you when you've got a natural curiosity for everything. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody can give me something, and I'll be up all night researching because it's just interesting how this world works. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick uh, business plan that I think will work, and that's what we want to eventually go to. And this might be for some of your your guys that are doing gardens and all. But here's here goes. Um, in Limestone County, where we live, there are probably eight schools. My best estimation is the lunches during those during the school year, which is the primary month, September to May, the wasted food in those lunches, which is mostly high sugar, will amount to about a ton per day. That's my best estimate. One ton of wasted food a day in those schools if they just scrape it off. Now, you don't need all that, of course. It'd take you forever to use it. All you need is 50 pounds a day to do what we're wanting to do. And if we double or triple that, of course, a couple hundred pounds. But here's the way I thought about marketing this. And uh, it's open for people to shoot holes in it. But if you went to a school that's nearby, so you don't have to travel very far, tell them you'd like them to scrape off their food waste and save that food waste for you. In return, you'll grow the stuff in a greenhouse, and during that school year, you will set up a little place for growing for lettuce, for various things you can grow that are wintertime crops. Let the people at the front sell it for you, and it comes out of the food waste you make. So this is all PR stuff. Food waste you make in the greenhouse to make the vegetables that you sell to all of the, the kids there. Let the school make some money with it as a fundraiser. They're always looking for ways to make money with it. And then you can have the kids out to have uh, some field day stuff 
and show them all the things you're doing with the greenhouse and how their food goes out there and back. So you've got a built-in way of selling all the produce that you want to way beyond all you want to make from the waste food, and you got the fertilizer to go along with it from the from the methane digestion. So just a little idea on sort of a, a small business plan that I think has a lot of teeth to it and would be real easy. That way you don't have to go out and sell it to anybody. Well, the I know that, uh, oh, I guess eight or nine years ago, I had uh, – <coughs> I was actually kind of working along those same lines because uh, I was working in, at the school as a substitute for a while, and right. I, I I did notice that. I noticed that the school is providing these breakfast lunches, and the kids are not eating. They're not eating 50 percent of it most of the time. And I was I was thinking I said there's got to be some way to harvest uh, uh, this stuff. The only problem that that I had that I saw right off the top of that. Well, you'd have to have uh, you'd have to really kind of uh, uh, figure out a way to get police them to it. yeah yeah you to would. police it because they they're really bad about that and uh, but it, but you could you know if you made it like you said if you made it like a a business kind of plan for the school and then they really pushed it there's a big sign there maybe even somebody standing there yep. during lunch duty and saying all right uh, you know food over here trash over here yep. you know. So you could actually they would get they that, would give uh, you your working. they would give you your raw material to make your food and then turn around and sell it for you. That how much better can it be, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but to give you an idea of how much food waste there is, it just appalls me. Is if you take I don't know about in Texas, but here in Alabama, and most all the the, the Department of Health is going to be the same. If you have these big buffets, uh, any food that is heated at the end of the night. If it cannot, if it's not like salads and cold storage, if it's anything that's been heated or cooked heated with oils and greases, has to be thrown away at the end of the night. They cannot keep it for the next day. That is a serious health violation. So you have in a city, you've got eight or ten of these Chinese and uh, you know different steak seafood houses, all these all you can eat buffets. Mm-hmm. One of those places may throw away as much as five fifty-five gallon drums of food a night. Right. Just it's just it boggles my mind. Even your local place that, that serves chicken, they'll throw away a five gallon pail every day of flour. Flour's a great right, way right. of making methane. I mean it's it's already ground up. It's already got everything. You just put the right nitrogen with it and you've got it. Um by the way, let me pass along one other website that your listeners would would if they're like me would really love. It's called the Humanure Handbook. H U M A N U R E. It's free online. Shows you how to make a composting toilet that really works. Rick actually made one. The thing really works. Uh, it, uh, or he made the doubt. He made one that we could use. But uh, you need to study up on humanure. And the, the reason is you'll learn the difference by reading this between being able to use human manure versus animal manure. You can use human manure, but you've got to heat it up, pasteurize it. But this right. book is a real. It's something else to add to your library. Because if you get to where you don't have electricity and you don't have that running water, you're going to need this. <laughs> well, there's a, 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 there are a lot of countries that use uh, the human waste as fertilizer for their crops. And you you could and, use it uh, in what we're doing here in this uh, because it will kill uh, it will kill a lot of those pathogens. In other words, the heat will pasteurize all of the parasites. Right. I wouldn't suggest doing it at least now. But now another interesting thing is, if you want to look up something interesting, look up human urine as a source of nitrogen. You talked about needing nitrogen, and y'all were talking about ammonia and all of that. Uh, mm-hmm. Human urine is sterile. It is sterile by nature. 
Good Lord put it, we're sterile when it comes through us. It is right. a man excretes, uh, an average American will excrete the equivalent of a 55-pound bag of pure ammonia every year out of his urine. It's a great fertilizer. The only problem in the states you have is in collecting it and using it, we could, is we got so many mood-altering drugs and antibiotics and everything else going through us. Yep. Till uh, it would it would alter everything, but in foreign countries, it is used as a fertilizer, and it is a very good fertilizer. It is so potent you have to cut it ten to one to even use it or to burn plants up. It's that strong. It's full of uric acid and, and ammonia. So, uh, if you want to do a good study, uh, that's that's a good one for uh, simply using something that's a byproduct to us as humans that will really work in a garden. I mean, it's amazing. Talking about composting those hay bales. That's one of the ways you can do it. You can do it with uh, with, with human urine because it's a real rich uh, in nitrogen. Well, it sounds like you guys are, are well on the way toward uh, some really good systems. And uh, you know, I've, I've I've just I've been studying the uh, what do they call it now aquaculture. Uh, right. And then there was and there's been several names for it before and. And for a while, there just wasn't any name for it. It was just, uh, right. uh, you know, part of the system and stuff. But uh, that's something certainly that uh, that I'm very interested in. And uh, I would aquaponics love to, and aerioponics. Uh, yeah, aeroponics yeah, is the other. To. That's where you do it in the air, and I really like that. But we're like everybody else, Scott. You know how everybody is. We're all tied up. So we're it's taking us a while to do it, but we're doing it as we can, as we can get to it. And of course, summertime we can do a lot more, and we just. Try not to get in too big a hurry and not have to re-engineer too many times. But uh, And you learn from other people's mistakes. That's what we try to do, and that's what we will offer. This mentoring thing we'll do is to offer it so people don't have to re-engineer. We'll have a reason for why we did it this way because we went through all the other ways. The other thing that I've built, uh, I think may have, Rick may have mentioned to you, that we have built up here is a, uh, a charcoal-making plant. And I did that based on a German's, uh, uh, some plans I bought from a German, and it's for third-world countries. Uh, and I'm doing it for this work over in Ghana because they have no electricity and they live off of they're, they're deforesting everything and making charcoal uh, and 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 that's how they live. They sell charcoal. That's how they live, selling right. it to the cities, these, these villages. But they also grow okra, they grow cotton, they grow uh, peanuts and millet, and they don't do if the animals eat a little bit fine. But most of the time, it just goes to waste. So our goal is to t- learn here first. And then teach them how to make charcoal out of that byproduct, uh, crop waste, so they don't have to travel 10 miles with wood on their head every day. Literally, that's what they do uh, to go get more wood and more wood and more wood. And it saves them because this is about 40% efficient versus the old smudge mound type of 10% efficient. The reason I bring that up is because in our society here, you can take sticks. Uh, acorns, uh, sweet gumballs, whatever, you can make charcoal out of them. And if you build one of these things uh, on the cheap, and ours is a little more expensive than this because we wanted to learn. We've got all kind of probes in it for temperatures, again, generating data. But if you once we learn this, we will be able to teach that. And if you've got something that you can put 2,000 pounds of wood, waste wood in, and light that thing up, and in 12 hours you come out with about 1,500 pounds of pure charcoal, that's worth something to people, I think. Right. And you can do a I, lot I of things with charcoal. charcoal. I make charcoal all the time just in my uh, fireplace. And, uh, yep, you do. It's just because you, you, I uh, 
well, I just take and I'll pile the, you know, I'll pile the wood in there, and uh, and uh, as a, as you put more and more wood in, and the ashes begin to cover, uh, you know, the uh, the the logs and stuff that you're putting in. If you're especially if you run it for, you know, a week or more without uh, cleaning it out, and then all, what right. I'll do is I'll shovel it all out. Uh, you know, once it's got once um once the temperature's gone back down and and it's cooled off and it, uh, I'll take it all out to get rid of it, but before I before I dump it, I've just got a uh, a basket that I made out of chicken wire. I'll just pour right. it into that and shake it, and then I'll have uh, I'll have uh, five gallons of uh, of charcoal, you know, of uh, oak yep. charcoal that I can use. And the fines, if you'll take the fines and wet them with water so you can spread them out, that is. Uh, uh, potash is potassium hydroxide, okay, which gives you potassium in the ground. You want to spread it out real good, but you can spread out the fines. But the charcoal, and what's interesting about charcoal, a study that you can do on YouTube where you can get a lot of information is called biochar. Biochar is basically unactivated charcoal. You grind up the charcoal very small, then you let it absorb, put it into whatever fertilizer you're going to use, methane or whatever, and you put it in and let it soak it up. And it's just like activated carbon, and it has a lot of micro, a lot of porosity, and all of these microbes and bacteria go up into those holes, and then you put them in the ground, and guess what? They help digest things in the ground, and and they're saying biochar is the answer to all of our agricultural needs because a little bit of it will grow a lot of stuff. It's like a time-release fertilizer for years, and uh, so look up biochar. It goes along with all of this. And uh, then one other I'll, I'll give you real quick, and we can talk about these in length more. It's called, have you ever heard of the term fish hydrolysate? I don't know yeah. if Rick's talked to you about that or not. You simply take fish. Uh, you, you can't. It's hard to grind their skin, so you take out, get you a little cheap insincorator, take fish and grind up their bodies. This is waste fish now that you wouldn't use otherwise. Carp will do and right. things of that nature. The skins are hard to, to, to deal with. The sincorator can't deal with it, but just grind up that fish Take some sulfuric acid, uh, or uh, if you if you want the sulfur in there, or you can take acetic acid, which is vinegar, or it's according to what salt you're wanting to make. Put about one percent in there. It will lower the pH to four, and it won't smell. It will knock most of the smell out because it neutralizes the acids. I mean the the basic materials, which are the nitrogens in there. Now, what's so good about this? is the hydrolysate is different than the fish emulsions. The fish emulsions have to be pasteurized so they won't start fermenting in the bottle and blow the bottle up. Fish right. hydrolysate can be done fresh, and what you get from that is you get the nitrogen from the fish's stomach and those gills. You get all of the growth hormones in their stomach that are actually good for us and good for plants, and you get all of the other bacterium that's in their stomach. What just like the, you know, the old story that Indians put a fish under the corn, well, there's a lot of truth to that. If you grind right. up these fish, neutralize it, immediately go out and put it in your garden, and over time you can turn it in, you're going to feed everything out there that wants that fish. And it doesn't take a lot to really make a garden grow. I mean, it's, but it's called hydrolysate, H-Y-D-R-O-L-Y-S-A-T-E. That means it's unpasteurized and it's natural. And, by the way, for those that might be entrepreneurial, if you do this, and you put in no more than 1% sulfur or potassium, it is uh, recognized as being organic fertilizer. So you can sell it as an organic fertilizer. Well, I'm still, uh, uh, I'm going to do some more research on the char 
because <coughs> a, a long while back, I thought that, uh, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I was thinking that, you know, I'd read a thing about the uh, the ashes, the potassium stuff being good for the, right. the soils and stuff, and... Uh, and of course, uh, you know, in 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 ignorant thinking, which is uh, if a little is good, a lot would be really good. And uh, right, I mean, I really overloaded uh, uh, the the ground, the the uh, uh, the raised bed that I was using with the right. ashes, you know, with oak ashes and stuff. So, uh, and that and that it will didn't kill it. it. Yep, yeah. it will kill it. Um, what you have to do, here's the difference between biochar and then ashes. Biochar, again, is done anaerobically without oxygen. You limit the oxygen, and what happens is the gases will come off of that, and you burn the gases, and you're left with just charcoal. When you burn it in a fireplace and you make ashes, you're actually burning it to the point with oxygen that the oxygen attaches to that and makes potash, which is potassium hydroxide. And that right. potassium hydroxide is very caustic. It's, it is a caustic. It's very high. So right. you have to you have to either neutralize it with something. Now you can take that potash and take sulfuric acid uh, and 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 put it in there. And and if you got a pH or litmus thing, bring it to a neutral pH. You now have potassium sulfate. If you put in uh, acetic, you'd have potassium acetate, which we don't. You can use. By the way, potassium acetate makes a good uh, natural bug killer. But you see, see, you're making salts. You're taking the high-range potassium on the basic side and an acid. If you take uh, borate, uh, boric acid, you make potassium borate. Uh, so you can take those ashes, and you can actually make a good fertilizer, but you want to neutralize them first because in that basic form, you're right. It don't take a lot to really hurt something. So, uh, right. And that's what you're doing right. with lime, right. by the way. Right, right. Go ahead. And... Uh, and uh, we were talking about that last week about the about the lime, and of course there's different types of lime that you want, and you, of course you want to be able you want to put it in the ground in time for it to break down uh, before you're going to use it. And we had uh, we get uh, our fields lined, uh, yes, you know every uh, six or seven years, uh, and uh, they'll bring uh, you know seven or eight to eighteen wheelers full of. Uh, of lime, it's just ground up uh, limestone, and uh, they'll there, swing it out uh, over the fields, and then we'll plow it in. If I may, I'll, let me make a distinction for you here, and I know this because I, I, we've actually been fortunate enough, I and a couple other fellows, to be able to patent something that we may sell. And, and the reason I know some of these things is we've actually developed a catalyst out of a food byproduct that will scrub sulfur dioxide out of coal-fired utility plants, which is a big deal right now. And uh, the Here's what here's the difference. Most people don't know this. It's this simple. Lime, when we say lime, we sort of use that as a generic term to right. cover all of those. Right. But limestone, ground up limestone or dolomite is what you're talking about. Agricultural lime right. is typically right. uh limestone. It has a pH of eight five. It's not very water soluble. So it has to be in the ground long enough that other things can work on it to make it water soluble. And I'll talk right. about that in a minute, because right. it's got to be water soluble before the plant can use it. When we say lime Lime really means slaked lime or uh, calcium hydroxide, which, like potassium hydroxide, is very caustic. Okay, it's on the high end of pH. So 
most time we use that term generically. So when you put out agricultural lime, in both cases, you want to neutralize them with something so they're water-soluble. So if you really want your garden to work now, you can literally take uh, limestone and you can put sulfuric acid to it. And then as and what happens is it makes the uh, it makes the calcium, which is what is in lime and limestone, calcium sulfate, again, which is gypsum, or you can neutralize lime uh, to work faster with just vinegar, household vinegar. Uh, it makes calcium acetate. Again, you've made it into a salt that is water-soluble that the plant can now absorb and take up into its uh, in, into the roots, and, and that's what you're after. Right. Um, so uh, just a little chemistry lesson there, because I deal with that. I'd have to deal with salts every day in what we do, because this same idea is used, believe it or not, to scrub sulfur out of uh, coal-fired utilities. You know, you hear all this about SO2 removal and scrubbing. They take, they literally take limestone rock, grind it down very, very fine in big grinding mills, put it into these scrubbers where they're blowing the flue gas off of the uh, that is full of the sulfur off of the coal. It goes through there. The immediate reaction is calcium sulfite, and they blow a lot of oxygen in there to oxygenate it, and it changes to calcium sulfate, which is not very water-soluble, as water-soluble, and that's gypsum, and it precipitates out, and they can take a little byproduct stream off of that and put it in ponds, and that's how they collect it off of there, and that's that's the simplistic version of how they scrub SO2 out of coal-fired utilities. So it's all about salts. <laughs> right, and the uh, and I certainly... Uh uh, you know, we're talking back again, and you mentioned the uh, using the fish parts, uh, right, uh, to create uh, 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 more fertilizer and stuff. And of course, you know, if you can if you can work it right, uh, you can have your whole system, uh, each part of it, uh, each part of it hooked into the next part. I, I didn't realize that it was. Uh, I, for some reason, I don't know why. I thought that the uh, the decomposing wood chips were creating more energy than you were using, but that's not the case. It's really it's I don't really I don't think we right haven't proven right that. Now. Yeah, we right. we're, we haven't proven that, and I would like to think it would, but my suspicion is it don't quite make more than what we need for the greenhouse. And realize that's a function of how big, how much are you trying to heat? Okay, how much BTUs right. are you making, and how much are you trying to heat? Now, summertime, of course, you don't need as much in there, so you wouldn't hardly use it. We didn't use it at all in the summer, even to heat the water in there to keep it up. But in the wintertime, if you've got, uh, if you have really cold nights where you've got, past two years we've had several that have been down uh, where we stay below freezing for five days in a row, you're going to need some supplemental heat. But I think you can get that from the generator and and not burning all the gas that you generate. It, it Remember, again, our premise was, and we're pretty comfortable it will do this, even being using conservative numbers, it will put out enough BTUs that would run uh, uh, the electricity, or refrigerator, freezer, stove, heating and cooling for a house of about 2,000 square foot. That's a lot of right. gas. Right. One of the best things right. we bought, just... by the way, and I'll... I'm sorry? No, no, Can you... go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, one of the best things that we've bought, my, I talked my wife into it to try it, and, and Rick has seen it, and we love it. It's a propane refrigerator. We researched them and researched them and said, you know, I want I want it where when we have tornadoes coming through here and the power goes down, I want to be able to have my, my, my refrigerator freezer not go out. So we bought one of these things. It looks like a regular refrigerator. It runs on a little pilot light, 
and it uses uh, 100 gallons of propane a year, which is not a lot. And it's got a, the freezer stays around one degree F, and the refrigerator around 38, 39. And the only electricity to it is the two D cell batteries that put the little light on when you open the door. I'm telling you, I love that propane because I told my wife rather than putting money into stock markets, as I've started looking at this. If you had, if you got it to where between a stove, a chest freezer off of propane, and a refrigerator, and your hot water, if you use say 600 gallons a year, and you got it to where you could store about 6,000 gallons in different places on a place, you've got enough. That's your retirement, if you might. At 55, I got enough to last 10 10 years if if all the lights went out, you know. Right. So right. it's all about BTU conservation to me. Uh, and how do you generate it with alternative energy? So between that and these other alternative energy sources we're talking about, now you've got something that, because to me in the future, I'll tell you, Scott, it's going to be all about energy. I mean, all of it. And it scares me because I know some things about the electrical industry that really bother me. Um, if you got a minute, I'll tell well, you. But let's, let's talk. Or about we can that save it for minute. another time. I, I, well, no, let's let's go ahead. Uh, let's go ahead and cover okay. that. And, and I think you're right. I think it's. It absolutely is going to be about energy, energy and water. Uh, yes, you know because water is, uh, the other. Water is, uh, is spinning up to be uh, one of the most important factors now uh, in uh, all across the United States because they they're not making more of it. Uh, what there is right. in the ground now is what there is, and there's not That's water right. doesn't uh, it doesn't seep back down through the ground into uh, into these uh, cisterns and stuff. Uh, the water that's down there, you know, is millions of years old, and as right. the as it's getting pumped out, uh, it's 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 getting used up, and uh, yep, because you'll see people that uh, people on the edges of these <laughs> of these huge underground lakes, their wells are going dry, and more and more water is being taken out. There's big companies like uh, here in Texas, uh, we've got several of the utility companies that are they're buying huge tracts of land. And then they are drilling wells, and they're pumping this water, selling this water out in uh, in eight foot uh, diameter pipes, and uh, right, and it's it's going like crazy. So water, I think, is going to be right up there with with energy, and uh, I think so. And I think it's very very important. But you were t- you were, you mentioned that you that you had some information about the utility companies, especially the uh, electric <laughs> companies. What do you well, what are you what are you hearing? The things the things that I, I've gathered over the last couple of years that concern me about the electrical uh, grid, if you will, uh, the electrical grid reminds me of the old Johnny Car uh, I mean uh, Johnny Cash song where he built his Cadillac one piece at a time over about fifteen years. Right, you know, right. and that that is the epitome of the electrical industry. We have technologies. And what has happened is they have built it. They started 50, 60 years ago with a rural electric, and then they started building it. And some of these things haven't been updated in years, so we're piecemealing this thing together right on up to our modern day. The problem with that is you have a lot of links in there that can be broken very easily and, and put out part of the nation into brownouts or blackouts. So that that is one concern I've had about it. The other is, um, and, and you can research this on the Internet and find it. This is all public record stuff, but... The, there's a, a friend of mine who works for the Corps of Engineers for the last 40 years, and uh, he used to be in electrical grid and things of that nature. And 
he said there's two or three problems that he sees that just that scares the bejeepers out of him. And, and the first one is these 500 kVA uh, transformers. They weigh about 200,000 pounds. Nobody in the United States makes them anymore. There's only one supplier, and that is China. Now, on top of there being 200,000 pounds, their big copper windings are huge. He said there's an 18-month waiting period on those those uh, those yeah. transformers because nobody has redundancy. He said, let me give you another one. On top of that, there is only one carrier in the world that can carry those. It is a Russian-owned, made and owned transport airplane that is specially made to transport these transformers into different parts of the world. So here you've got something being built by the Chinese that is being transported by the Russians, who we're not on real good terms with. So what do you think that means? I mean, you can just you ain't got to be real smart to see that that could be a problem. That's the first thing. The second thing is, he said, and of course the KVAs, he said what concerns concerned him at the time is, all it takes is a rifle shot, just like what y'all had out west out there back uh, about uh, summer was a year ago, uh, which was a surgical strike to see what would happen to a uh, some of those transformers out in the middle of nowhere. He said, you punch a hole in the bottom of one of those 500 KVAs, you let about one-third of the oil drain out, it burns it down. And you, now you got to go through all this stuff to try to get it back in there to get something up. He said, if that happened in multiple places at one time, he said, you would have real problems. That's the first one. He said, here's the second one. These big transform or these big uh, electrical grid outlets that you have, these power stations, some of them very large. He said they have some very specific insulators that go in there, glass insulators. They are specially made, no longer made in the United States. They're made overseas. There are not a lot of them kept on hand, and they're backlogged all the time in trying to get them. He said it don't take a lot to 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 take out several of those things in some really big substations, and then you create this effect, this ripple effect that can cause problems. That concerns me. Um, the third thing is, last December, I think the fourth, I mean, sorry, January the 14th was the coldest day of the year, and I read some articles, uh, mainstream articles, about there were five guys that kept our grid from having a problem between Canada, America, and Mexico, because now we're tied into all of them together. Five guys stayed up around the clock to keep our grid from going down on those two cold days because they were consuming. We were consuming as three countries so much electricity till they were overloading all the systems. Now that's that makes a very tenuous system when you think about it. And then on top of that, you've got people trying to attack it. I've read things again, mainstream media, not not conspiracy theory, but mainstream media things that suggest we get as many as five thousand tries on our electrical grid every day. Now, right. that bothers me because some of these plants I visited some in some of this work I do. Some of these plants are thirty, forty years old, and they run very good. They're immaculate. They kept in shape. I have to give them kudos. They they really are done well. There's some smart people out there. And we've been running these plants for a long time, and they will last a whole lot longer. But some of the things in there, security-wise, are not as good maybe as they used to be, you know? And so if you think about that, the only real thing between us and third world is is electricity. I mean, period. Try to sit sometime, or if you travel overseas, try to sit somewhere real quiet sometime and think about how would my life be different without electricity and the ability to have it for 30 days? And it really messes up your mind when you think about that. 
And, I mean, you haven't even got him to get into the prepping things to even think like that because it's a serious issue. And we're consuming more electricity than we're able to put out. We've got government that does not want to build any more plants, that don't want to build coal-fired plants, that don't want to do all these things. And so, therefore, we have got, we're on a house of cards that's going to fall. It's not if, it's when it falls. It could be 20 years from now. I hope it is. Right. But there's a lot of things you can kick the can down the road. Electricity is not one you can kick the can down the road because when you lose it or you burn out these transformers, you have a delay time in trying to get all that fixed. And uh, that's a real problem. So that's Danny's uh, theory 101 on uh, on the electrical grid system. And that's well, why I'm so concerned I mean, about uh, BTUs. Uh, yeah, and this is something that uh, is certainly not uh, uh, certainly not like a like a new uh, worry because no, it's a uh, it's a worry that uh, that we've had for a good uh, while, and I don't I haven't really noticed anybody uh, trying to fix it. And uh, they're, like you they're said, not. They don't know how. Systems. You know, we've yeah. got these systems that uh, that are no longer independent. They're all wired in together, uh, which facilitates uh, the delivery of uh, yep. of the electricity. But the, the the other side of that, the horrible side of that, is that is that they are not. Uh, uh, I, don't get me wrong. I know that the utility companies have all types of safety uh, devices, mechanisms, and stuff like that. But they really, uh, they really lean on each other like dominoes. And were you to destroy uh, or or harm uh, a section of it, then uh, then it causes all of the rest uh, to fall down. And it does. The, the more the more uh, kinks. The- the more links you have in that system, the easier it is to break the system. And that's the scary part uh, because we do have some smart people, but you can't, over, you can't over-engineer stupidity. And you're going right. to have that in our society today. There's no way to over-engineer stupidity. And you're going to have people that do the wrong thing and pull the wrong lever because they don't know. And it's not ignorance. They've been told it's stupidity. And that stupidity is what's going to bring us down because – Somewhere along the line, the guy's going to do something, the wrong thing, one guy, and it's going to create a cascading effect, as you've talked about there. It's going to affect us in a bad, in a bad way. And, and I, think that's, uh, I think we all have to be cognizant of that, and I think we have to work around that. And the bottom line is BTUs. If you can keep your family warm we can, we can in the wintertime. We can deal with heat. We've all dealt with heat in the summertime. You can't deal with being cold in the wintertime. Uh, you can do without showers. You can take cold showers, but it sure is a creature comfort to have a warm shower. So it's you know there's some there's some things and it's all around BTUs, and that's why I guess at the end of the day, I'd like to have three or four systems that if something does come through and we have some problem of some sort, uh, you know, I, my family doesn't it doesn't change a whole lot from a BTU standpoint. I can keep them warm. And I can keep them, uh, and then we keep them fed with what we can grow in our greenhouse. And that's just a common sense. It's just making your 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 footprint a little smaller. Um, you know, can we get off the grid? Well, that'd be nice, but boy, it takes a lot of work to be off the grid. It's real easy to be on that grid. But if right. we could You're be, right. that would be great. Sure, it takes a but lot the, of work to be off of a grid. But the uh, 
but and one of the things I try and tell folks uh, on the show here, because we we talk about self reliance quite a bit, is uh, that you you don't have to uh, uh, you don't have to go out and say, look, I, I'd, I'd really like to get started, uh, you know, preparing a, a plan for myself and my family. I'd like to, you know, get some food and seeds and right. all this and that. I'd really like to do it, but. I just don't. I don't have the money to go out and pay you know, three or four thousand dollars and get started. And and I I I try and harp over and over again. Look, that's not that's not what you need to do. That's not how you need to think about it. You don't you don't think about going out and getting everything at once. Just just think about going out and getting uh, you know uh, a week's worth. Uh, I usually right. books just to start with a day. Get get a day's worth of. Uh, of whatever it is that you need to take care of yourself and your family for just one day, get started with that, so that you're at least uh, you at least have one day of a buffer, and then you 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 build up from there, so that every time you every time you do something, every time you add something in, uh, you know, yeah, and you may never, you more than likely, very few people are ever going to reach that point where they're off the grid. But each time you add another 24-hour uh, buffer between you yep. and, uh, you know, starvation and, and disaster, and uh, you know, every time you buy one candle, every time you uh, buy, uh, you know, an extra can of food, you're, you're, you're building that, uh, you're building up that safety net. So uh, I, I it's a savings account. Focus. It, yeah. It, it is a savings account, and, and I'll tell you, I, I, I know you, you you believe in religion and, and, and that kind of thing. There's something, I, I wrote a paper for the, some of the men at church. We've discussed some of these things, and I wrote a couple of papers. One of them is on uh, the role, in my case, the role of a husband and father, and it could be single mother, whatever. But the role that was given to us primarily is to protect, to provide, and make provision. And if you break those words down, provision is looking forward with something in mind. Protect means taking, looking forward to take care of your family. And and we're supposed to look forward at these kind of things. Our parents tried to do that. We're supposed to try to do that. What I see is so many people, they're they're not worried about tomorrow. And and I'm afraid that's been bred into our culture that they're not worried. And really, what you're just talking about and I'm talking about are very simple things. And it's the same way with living on a budget. What's the first thing you do? You try to cut little things here and there and save that money in that egg box. You don't go spend that money. You do the same thing with your food. It's only common sense that if you can raise a little extra, you put it away. It's a savings account. That's all it is. It's an insurance, if you will. I tell people all the time, you know, I had a guy talking about this very thing, and he made the point. He said, uh, "He said I don't understand people putting up things and and saving like that." He said, "In our society today, well, when he got and it was in a talk in church. Well, when he got through, I went to him and I, I said, Jim, I said, you sell death insurance?'" He said, "No, I don't." He said, "I sell life insurance." I said, "No, yeah. you don't." Yeah. You sell death insurance, man. If you can't convince somebody they're going to die and leave their family without anything. That's called death insurance. You can't call it that or you'd never sell it. So you call it life insurance, but it ain't life insurance on me. It's for my family. I said, so please, don't get up there and knock people that are putting aside physical things because that's an insurance more so to me than it is for you to go out and buy death insurance. 
And he looked at me, he said, you know, I've never thought about it like that. I said, well, you couldn't be making a living that you've made the last 30 years if you were selling it and calling it death insurance. So you paint a rosy picture. I said, but for people that want to go out and put lay by and store, if you will, I said, that's only good biblical principle to lay by and store. And I, he said, right. you know, I, I, he said, I just never thought about it like that. I said, well, I don't knock people that want to lay by and store physical goods as well as the, you know, the green notes, too. I said, I think you ought to do all of it. I really do. Right. And, boy, people <laughs> people, people really uh, – I'll tell you what. I had a fellow, same kind of thing. This guy used to sell uh, – he worked for one of the big P&Gs or somebody. He was a pharmaceutical salesman. And one of our guys was going into the short loan business, this $500 business or whatever, and he come to me asking right. some, some of my opinion on it. And I, and I was trying to give him, and, and this guy comes to us from the same church we went to, and he said, Danny, you, you know, are you talking to him about going into the short loan business? He said, you know, they charge like 25 or 30% interest. I said, Jim, who do you work for? He said, well, I think it was P&G or Bristol-Myers. One of them. I said, you're a pharmaceutical salesman, right? He said, yep. I said, how much do you mark up them drugs that you sell? That's right, two hundred. And he looked at me and he said, I, "Yeah, I said you mark it up anywhere from twenty to two, like you said, two hundred times." I said, "And this man, if he's got people wanting to come to him and buy stuff, and they need to pay, and he charges twenty percent or a hundred percent, that's their business." I said, "So don't look down on the man's doing that when you're selling drugs that are marked up two thousand percent by the time it gets to me as yeah. a consumer." And he looked a little cheapest, and he said, you know, I won't ever say another word. I just never thought about it like that. <laughs> Sometimes it's all in how you look well, at it, ain't it? <laughs> right. And It's common you know, sense. You're, you're, you're working real hard on your greenhouse thing, and that's that's also a point that I try and, <clears throat> that I try and let people, or I'd, I'd like people to understand, is uh, it, now, I also try to make people understand that, you know, that self-reliance isn't, uh, you you try and prepare for the most likely as opposed to the least likely. And the most likely is, uh, you know, a, a three-day event or a one-day event. Uh, you know, it's ice on the roads or a tornado right. or or something like that. It's not the end of the world. Uh, sure. It's most likely. So you want to try and prepare for the, the most likely as opposed to the least likely. However... If during your preparation it covers uh, all the way up to the least likely, then you're in even better shape. And by that I mean that uh, I try and tell folks that uh, you know that your food has to last you, whatever you whatever you have uh, put by, whatever you put up, it has to last you until you can harvest the seeds that you plant. Right. And depending on Depending on whenever such an event would occur, uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of time difference. You know, if something happens yep. and you say, okay, now I've got to grow food, and it's in March, then you're like you're you're perfect. You're you're right where you need to be. You got uh, right. 30 days until you can start eating your radishes. You know, whatever. But uh, but if it occurs in uh, you know October, then then you're going to be in a little bit of more trouble because you're going to have to you're going to have to wait until the weather changes back that you can plant, which is going to be six months, and then uh, then 30 to uh, 90 days for your harvest. However, if you can plant year-round, like if, one, if you have a greenhouse that you set up, right. it is self-sustaining and self-heating, okay, now 
you're just you're at that 30 day mark no matter when it happens so these are just things for for people to consider on top of like you said if you can uh, if you can provide uh uh fruits or vegetables uh to the market and you that's what you want to do is you want to provide to the local market and the, and there are a lot of right. local markets i mean a lot of local restaurants even uh, in little towns here I was eating one uh, this last week and uh and what they do is on the on the walls they have several big chalkboards and on the chalkboard they'll have listed uh what fruits or vegetables they're getting from who locally so that you'll know right. you know who the, who they are purchasing from and what you're you know where the the food that you're getting where it's being uh, uh procured from uh, anyway the uh if you can provide uh high quality uh fruits and vegetables you know to uh to these markets year round then that then then you're in great shape you know if that's something that you well, want to do then... and the the thing that people miss too i think too scout is yes if you want to make a business i don't know that i'll ever make a business out of mine other than mint this mentoring business but here's the thing at the end of the day we are what we eat, by and large, and I'm learning as I get older that I need to eat better. If you get to where you can feed your family off of things you've grown, it does two or three things. It builds some self-esteem because you teach your kids some really common things that they can do. It gives them self-esteem, but it helps your health a whole lot, and people know that more and more. If you can eat things that you know, just like I know you're talking about, you got organic beef. They're range, they're range-fed. They're out on the range. If you can raise your own chickens, and a lot of people are doing that now, so you got your own eggs. It's amazing the difference, and people, I think, are wanting to get back to that for health reasons because we are a society full of pharmaceuticals these days. They want to do their own things their way, and so to do that as part of your plan is you've got to know how to put that food up in a, in a jar or in something to be able to keep it because, like you said, you've got a growing season and a non-growing season. So right. all of this is just common sense that we all ought to be doing anyway, but we don't because we're an affluent society. And we just forget that that can be taken away from us. If you don't believe it, ask the Germans sometime. You know, it can all right. be taken away from us. Um, and and I still know enough older guys that they remember the times when it was taken away from us. And we just have to be careful. And uh, and and just I like conservative lifestyle people. I'm conservative in my lifestyle. I think we need to live within our means. We need to help people when we can, as much as we can. I don't believe in enabling anyone. I think you have to help them, but I think as good stewards of the things that we've been given and our talents, we have to be very careful not to enable someone in a bad behavior. But if I find somebody I can help, I will help them, but only to the point where I'm not enabling them. And if we would all do that, it'd be a lot better world, and we all know that. It's Again, it's all common sense. we just got to put it in. I appreciate your show, by the way, and I've listened to it some as I've had time, but I uh, appreciate you inviting me on. I know we're probably way past time here, but we could talk about these things all night. <laughs> Well, I'd, I'd like to uh, I'd like for you to come back on uh, in a little while and and cover some of the other subjects that okay. that we that we didn't. But I do appreciate you coming back on, and I'm really interested uh, in following uh, in following how this is how this is running out and how it okay. is how it's working because uh, I think you've got a great you got a great program, and I always milk JB for details about it whenever I talk to him. <laughs> I mean, and, we uh, enjoy it. Rick and I are cut out the same kind of, sort of cloth, I think. 
Well, like I said, I, I do appreciate it. And thank you so much for uh, – I, I know you're busy. Even if, you're, if, you, even if it's not uh, – some job you're working on. I know that you're uh, you're constantly doing research and everything else. And I appreciate you devoting right. the time tonight, and uh, and I hope that uh, that the folks that were listening uh, were taking notes and 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 uh, and they can certainly you can always listen to the show in archives. But right. uh, we'll uh, talk to you again uh, okay. in, the, in a little bit in the future, and we'll get you to come back on if that's okay. Great. Just let me know, and we'll set uh, it up. Thank you very much. Have a good evening. Thank you. God bless and keep uh-huh. doing yours, and uh, and we'll see you in the future. Same thanks. Thank you very much. Same to you. Good day. All right. Bye bye. Well, the uh, uh, there was certainly a lot of information, but it, uh, it was really great information, and uh, and I hope that you guys were uh, were listening, and uh, and like I said, I'm taking notes because it's it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. To keep in your head, but just like he, just like Danny was talking about, and everybody knows now, you can go uh, straight to uh, you can go straight to Google and start uh, uh, start doing the research on the stuff that you were that you were hearing about tonight, and uh, and start uh, building up uh, building up whatever uh, whatever you need to get your own project going and uh, uh like we were talking about it doesn't have to be uh, a, a big swimming pool size thing uh they've got these set up just like he was uh, talking about uh they've got it set up where you can you can make enough to uh to run the uh you know the the cooking needs for your family just out of a couple of 55 gallon barrels <clears throat> so having this information uh, available, I think, is very important for uh, for a lot of reasons. All right, uh, I think that's going to do it for uh, for this evening. I want to thank uh, Danny Cook and I want to thank uh, JB too. JB was, I guess, he was here the whole time. He just uh, he never jumped in. He was here listening. I'm going to bring him on real quick. Hey, so you were listening the whole time. How come you didn't jump in? <laughs> I thought you had it pretty well covered. <laughs> I didn't have a lot to contribute. I, uh, if I were going to say anything, I would just say, uh, you know, all the stuff that, that Danny talked about and the stuff that we're working toward is um, it's just backup. Everybody should have a backup plan. All it takes is one earthquake, one hurricane, one tornado, one ice storm, you know, one brownout, and you're there. And you think about how much of your everyday life revolves around the use of electricity. And uh, from, you know, making your house comfortable to cooking your food to <laughs> everything you touch. And uh, the, the more self-sufficient you are, the better off you'll be. And, uh, right. you know, you can you can take it from little simple scenarios like we talked about there to and giant conspiracy theorist-type theorist uh, type things, too. You know, cataclysmic worldwide things. And... Uh, but either way, you should be prepared. Right, and one way you can do it is energy be, uh, being energy sufficient. Right, and uh, the other thing is, like uh, I try to tell people too, that it doesn't ever have to be even one single disaster for you to benefit from this. Because uh, if you can uh, uh, grow uh, your own, uh, like we we're talking about last week, you can grow your own tomatoes. Uh, 
for your salad and for your for your dinner during the <clears throat> during the year. Uh, then you're not having to buy it. You're able to uh, to exert more control over the the type of food that you're putting into your body. There doesn't have to be a disaster. I mean, you can cut down your your food costs by raising your own food. You can get better quality food. It doesn't. It, there, there's simply no disaster that's required. Uh, it's just uh, it's just really good common sense thinking. Yeah. Exactly. All right, uh, I guess that's going to do it for this evening. And uh, like I said, if any of you guys, uh, if there are if there are topics that you would like to uh, you would like to hear about, or guests that you would like to uh, to have on the show, be sure and let me know so that I can uh, I can get those scheduled uh, and get them in the pipeline for you. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments uh, or anything. Be sure and send those to me, and I'll be glad to uh, do my best to get you uh, any information that you're that you're looking for, or direct you to to uh, who can provide it for you. All right, uh, uh, I want to thank uh, uh, JB and Mr. Cook and uh, Sam D. I want to thank uh, Sam for for being with uh, every time you see me. Uh, uh, or every time you hear me on the uh, the show, uh, you're getting uh, uh, Sam uh, at the same time. So Sam, thanks uh, for all the work that uh, you do to uh, to make uh, sure that the show is going great. Thanks to all the folks that are listening uh, to us live tonight, and uh, to all the folks that will be listening uh, later on in the archives. And uh, we'll see you guys this uh, next week, uh, 7 p.m. Central Thursday night. Until then, uh, take care. God bless and keep you all. We'll see you next Thursday.